Welcome to the public morality. Since the Constitution was ratified, there has been a commitment to a free press, a concept that runs a parallel course with a free society. But with public trust declining and increasing amorphous definition of the press and what it means to be a journalist, along with the added complexities of the 21st century, journalism is no longer just collecting, writing, and publishing articles in newspapers and magazines or broadcasting them on radio or television. What is the meaning of a journalist in the 21st century? To grapple with this question and others, we welcome back veteran journalist Ray Suarez. Ray Suarez, welcome back to The Public Morality. Great to be with you, Byron, as always. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to begin so we can sort of define our terms. How, how would you define journalism in the 21st century? Uh, and what, in your view, constitutes the media? Well, <laughs> so we start with the softballs there's an, first. Uh, there's, a, there's a real answer and there's an ideal answer. The ideal answer is that um, the new, that journalism would be the act of creating content that informs people about their world, entertains and engages them, but also gives them the tools they need to do the work of being a citizen. That's the ideal definition. The real definition is creating stuff that uh, makes the needle move if it's radio, mm-hmm. <laughs> is visible if it's television, or is readable if it's print, and doesn't have all those pretensions about public service, uh, but also can make people angry, engage them emotionally, and uh, give them the opportunity to talk with other people, which was never a part of the definition before. Media is now so amorphous as a thing that everything's media. And when everything's media, trying to enforce standards, norms, best practices becomes impossible, especially at a time where technology has made it possible for everybody to be a content producer and a communicator, which means, you know, it's, it's like a scrum. You, you yell everybody into the pool and then there's, it's impossible to say, hey, you know, actually you should, when you write a story about that, you should tell the truth or you should make sure your facts are correct, or you should make sure you hear from other people who disagree with the main thrust of your narrative, all those things out the window. Hmm. Um, uh, So so in that that latter definition, um, uh, the the, the opinionated talk shows that come on primetime cable news, um, those now, you would now uh, qualify those as, as journalism. Well, they're all media. And oh, media, all, media, I'm sorry. And they're all content. <laughs> and we have to remember that while the distinctions between types of content are pretty important to people in the news business, so that a front page above the fold article in the New York Times with a byline on it from a news reporter is different from the Joe Rogan show. To the consuming public, those two things aren't that different. What Joe Rogan says is Joe Rogan's opinion, and what that front page article in the New York Times says is that reporter's opinion. The consuming public doesn't make the fine distinctions that 
we inside the belly of the beast do. Well, increasingly, on, right on on that New York Times piece, and and and, and I'm not not to pick on the New York Times per se, but but but. Um while I believe it started while it was candidate Trump before it was President Trump, they made a decision to put on the front page um, Trump lied. And I wonder, not to pick on the New York Times, but just sort of in a macro philosophical context, is that a dangerous road, in your view, for journalism to tread? It was not a conversation that the news business wanted to have. This was not a challenge that our business ever wanted to enter into. The Trump presidency was so unusual. It graphed so far on one end of the table when it came to the use of ideas and propositions and allegations and assertions. It used uh, untruth so potently that the business was forced to take a stand that it didn't want to take. You know, reporters often walk away from news conference conferences, whether it's the mayor or the county board or the local sheriff or the president of the United States. You come away thinking, I don't think he or she was telling the truth. And then you write a story that shows ways that what the person just said may not line up with the truth. But President Trump was so outrageous when it came to that, that even if you demonstrated that he was knowingly lying, unlike other politicians who would then put out a subsequent release or send out their spokesperson to clarify their earlier remarks or what he meant to say was this, or uh, I'm sorry he was incorrectly quoted, something something that might show sh some shame or contrition or, oh, you caught me or something, yesterday's lie may be totally contradicted by today's lie, which only is, as operative, is only operative until tomorrow's lie. It was a one-off when it came to the behavior of a prominent public official and a relationship to true and verifiable facts. We have never seen anything like it before. The business had to find a way to respond. And believe me, the New York Times, like a lot of other newspapers, began by using the conventions and folkways of the trade, you know, leaving open the possibility that perhaps they weren't knowingly trafficking in a mistruth, um, pointing out other facts in evidence that would contradict what the president or one of his spokespeople said, using all the various other ways of doing it and not using the L word. But finally, it got so outrageous and in many, many cases, so apparent that he knew what the truth was when saying this latest untruth that you had to. I don't think you had any choice after a point because if you didn't call it a lie, if you knew it was a lie, you could prove it was a lie, but you didn't call it a lie, that's not keeping faith with your readers or listeners or viewers, the people you serve as a reporter. If you know it's a lie and are unwilling to call it a lie, well, what are you doing then? 
you know, it's, mm-hmm. you would call other people who are telling lies to the public liars. Why not the president of the United States? Hmm. Well, well, to that end, Ray, does does that, in your view, um... oh, and, and let Go me just it. say one Go right thing. Ahead. Go ahead. I don't, I don't envy uh, the editors who had to sit around the table. This is not something they did cavalierly or easily. It is crossing a big, bright line to start routinely calling the president of the United States a liar. And it's not easily done, and it's not something done uh, in a way that's just sort of, oh, well, what the heck, we'll just call him a liar. It was a, a, an important decision that they made. But unfortunately, because of the behavior of the former president, it was made almost unavoidable. Mm-hmm. When you have a person in such an important job saying known and understood untruths about the things involved in running the country. These are consequential things. He lied about inconsequential things, stuff that didn't matter at all, and then he lied about really important things. And he did it so much, so willy-nilly, in such tremendous profusion that the business was forced uncomfortably and reluctantly to respond by saying he was lying. And what I was going to um, follow up with, just on, on, on that note, does it um, create a permanent transformation uh, in the way politics is covered, at least at a national level, since the advent uh, of the Trump presidency? Is that a concern? It's a big challenge. Once this really unusual one-off experience in the life of the business is lived through, Does that change the rules for every subsequent president? Does it change the rules permanently of how newsrooms work in this regard? I think they're still feeling their way forward. They're still feeling their way forward. And uh, Biden has often misspoken in trivial ways, inconsequential ways. But to show that they're still on the case, there's this heightened sensitivity to correcting the president in real time in order to demonstrate even-handedness. So I think even the kind of incorrect information that gets given out sometimes, um, not with the intention to lie, but just because there's just a profusion, such a profusion of statements, um, restatements, policy directives, all this stuff, that if you if you term it all lying, then I think you're you're misstating what what's going on. But if you term none of it lying, I think you're misstating too. Trump is having a long shadow when it comes to that. We're still, as I look at the at the news business, I think we're still figuring it out. Um, and and then where does uh, or how does social media uh, influence and or assist in the reporting of news stories in the 21st century? Well, a lot of social media doesn't use the tools of verification and sourcing and verifiability that you would hope goes into conventional news content. So a lot of ideas get trafficked in social media that are just dumb or false, but they become very potent ideas nonetheless. And it's one thing if you're a reporter fighting incorrect conclusions on the part of the public. I, I don't know what else to call them. Ideas that people carry around in their heads that don't comport with reality. They 
are always standing there as as a challenge to a reporter who's trying to cover whatever it is, public spending, immigration, taxation policy, whatever it is, uh, criminal justice. And it's only made worse by the ability of new sources of information and new trust networks to totally work around the conventional media. So yes, you've got reporters beating their brains out, trying to ferret out a particular piece of data from the Department of Labor or a particular piece of spending from state government that they're not too proud about and don't really want to talk about that much. And that's hard. Telling the truth is hard and finding the truth is hard. But if you can just write your opinion, because it feels like because Joe Biden canceled the Keystone pipeline, that that's why gas prices have gone up when that's completely nonsense and the world price of oil has gone up two and a half times since early last year. Joe Biden doesn't control the world price of oil and Joe Biden didn't make gasoline more expensive in France or Germany or Morocco. He's just not that powerful. Gas is more expensive everywhere on the planet and Americans, certainly Americans who didn't vote for Joe Biden last year are saying, because he canceled the Keystone Pipeline, which moves a really low-grade form of petroleum through a pipeline to the Gulf Coast for export to other places in the world, that that's why your gas is so expensive. That's That's just not true. But it's really hard to disabuse the public of a notion that they are quite fond of. So I see that repeated in social media every day of the week. Well, see, and that brings up actually my, my next point because it, it seems that whatever benefits um, uh, the social media brings, and I was certainly one, it allows me uh, to, to negotiate directly with individuals that I wouldn't be able to um, be in contact with. But at the same time, it seems, and these are my words, that it's robbing us of a much-needed nuance. And so just given that example about the Keystone Pipeline, how does journalism negotiate that conundrum where I have my truth? I don't care what you say, Ray Suarez. I have my truth. Uh, Joe Biden's making gas prices go up. When there's a much-needed nuanced conversation, and how does, can, how does journalism, you know, in, in your initial response, uh, uh, fight through that cloud? Unfortunately, all we can do is continue to do what we do. There's no way, there's no way to um, meet people who are distributing untrue ideas on their own terms. And uh, if, a, if an untruth is more appealing than the truth, the untruth is an available option now. That's the the cratering of faith in the American news business has created a world where it's a completely available option to not believe the news media and instead believe a more appealing idea. The fact that it's wrong no longer is enough to make you say, oh, I can't believe that anymore. I'm not allowed as an adult to believe things that are completely stupid and untrue because I can't do that. No, no, no. Now you can take shelter in appealing notions that comport with the rest of your politics. So 
if you don't like Joe Biden, and many millions of people don't, you can believe that, uh, for instance, he wants to give every illegal immigrant $4,500. Now, it's a tiny number of, uh, of people who are undocumented in this country who are going to get payments uh, to compensate them for the uh, family separation policies at the border of the early Trump administration. There are around 12 and a half million undocumented immigrants in this country, and a couple of thousand people are going to get these payments. But I have seen again and again the notion that Joe Biden is giving every illegal $5,000. <laughs> it's something that will infuriate you, wind you up, get you amped up to go back on social media and listen to people who are saying that. Yes, a more nuanced conversation is absolutely necessary because we've got big problems that we've got to solve as a people. We've got big challenges that we can only solve if we recognize the truth of the situation that we're trying to fix. We can't come into the negotiating table totally possessed of fictional ideas about the world. We can't solve anything then. But this new part of the media ecosystem makes it possible to still be an adult and still believe things that are completely batty. Look at the rise of QAnon. Nobody, you know, people aren't totally ashamed and humiliated by having it revealed that they believe QAnon ideas about the world. I think that's sort of exhibit A in what's going on right now. No amount of me or you saying that there's no cabal of powerful international figures drinking the adrenalized blood of tortured infants will make them stop believing that. Look at the number of people who showed up in Dealey Plaza waiting for JFK Jr. the other day. That's a dangerous situation where millions of Americans can continue to believe ideas about the world and the way the world works that are completely batty that are unmoored in reality, and no amount of conventional media reporting will make them believe that that's not true. In fact, the more conventional reporting that there is saying it's not true, the more tightly some of them are going to believe it, because they're going to say, yeah, of course they're saying it's not true, because they want to they get me off the scent. They want to, I've, I've got them now. I know this secret thing, and now... I'm taking it as a piece of data that they're even more insistently covering the fact that JFK Jr. is not alive, so now I believe he's alive even more. They were even talking about JFK Sr. coming along, and he would be 104 years old. Right. Not to mention all of his health problems. He probably wouldn't have made it this long anyway. <laughs> you bet. He would have been lucky to see his 70th birthday if he didn't get shot to death. And now a 104-year-old man is going to come and present his son as Trump's next vice president. I mean, there's, there's no amount of, of craziness that's too much. Earlier, you, you, you mentioned the um, uh, citizen journalists, if you would, just sort of the rise of, of, of technology and its creation. And, and when you said that, I thought about something that's been attributed to Ben Bradley over the years when he was asked about citizen journalism. He says, I don't know, are there citizen surgeons? And so, you know, 
Uh, well, Ben Bradley had a more exalted idea of the profession than I do. Yeah, right, right. But it does. But it does sound like something Ben Bradley would say. But, but oh, absolutely. <laughs> but, 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 with that, you know, you you mentioned you mentioned uh, Dealey Plaza, and you think uh, if we just do this continuum, 1963, you had Abraham Zapruder, and then 2020, you know, look at the people who filmed. You know the murder of George Floyd. I mean, clearly that more people have been self-deputized as journalists. How was this negotiated? Because, as you said earlier, I can just I can just upload my content on the social media, creating in many almost an instant truth that may or may not align with reality. Okay, um, it, let's let's imagine a situation where there is a long encounter between a member of law enforcement and an armed and dangerous member of the public. And the uh, policeman attempts to get the man to surrender his weapon, uh, to uh, take a posture that would make him less dangerous to the public around him, but that it ends up in a shooting. But someone just posts the shooting. Mm -hmm of a now unarmed man. That's going to create a very different impression. I can't do that. You can't do that. But a member of the public who has an interest in inflaming public passions can do that. And the way people are now assembling trust networks for themselves means that they might not trust Byron and they may not trust me, but they will trust someone who's in their network of um, of contacts it may not even be someone they know personally and in real life but it's somebody whose posts they've read regularly who has entertained them or engaged them or interested them that's where we are right now a member of the public who irresponsibly and i would say even uh damagingly tries to inflame public passions about an event has as much social presence, as much informational impact as someone whose job it is to find things out and explain to the public what happened. And if we're on the same level now, and I think we are, that's a much more difficult environment to operate in with the truth. Because sometimes a lie is exciting and the truth is boring. It just sometimes is that way. It's not a function of whether we tell the truth in an interesting and exciting way. Sometimes the truth is boring where a lie is really stimulating and exciting. And in that atmosphere, the truth loses, unfortunately. Now, now this is a purely subjective observation on my part, but it, it feels that um, we talked earlier about the influence of uh, former President Trump. But it feels to me that many journalists wishing not to be labeled bias succumb to what many have dubbed that false equivalency. And this is a, a purely hypothetical um, uh, uh, example, but it's, it's like it would be like if someone is reporting on storming um, the Capitol on January 6th but felt compelled to talk about um, Black Lives Matter protest that, that occurred the prior year. So do you worry that, that this sort of phenomenon um, uh, is becoming a journalistic standard in certain newsrooms? 
the one, one part of our national spectrum of thought has been working the refs for generations now. And now we've, those of us who work in the information business have so internalized that narrative that we bend over backwards to make it look like we're being fair. That's not always a bad thing, but it too often descends into a kind of both sidesism that ends up misstating the, the real gravity and reality of stories, elevating uh, marginal and unsustainable ideas to a level of equivalency that they don't deserve. So I, um, I worry about both sidesism. I worry about false equivalency. Uh, and, you know, every time someone said to me, well, what about the riots last summer? I said, well, okay, uh, when, if you set a car on fire on the streets of Minneapolis, were you trying to overthrow the government of the United States? Is it the same thing? Even if we did say, yeah, that was terrible that they set that car on fire in the streets of Minneapolis. Yes, that was terrible that that business in Kenosha uh, ended up getting torched. That shouldn't have happened. But, you know, people shouldn't try to stop the government of the United States from working either. How about that? I mean, it's just... It's crazy, but there we are with the conversation now. How about this thing that has nothing else to do with it? So a bunch of people tried to stop the change of chief executive of the United States of America, a not only nationally consequential act, but a globally consequential act. And your answer to me is that's not a big deal because people did unpleasant things in St. Louis last summer, or the window of a Starbucks got broken in Washington, DC? Yes, I'm willing to stipulate. Nobody should have broke the window of that Starbucks. That shouldn't have happened. What does that have to do with guys in camo smashing their way into the United States Capitol? Nothing, nothing. To some degree, I think I think in our history, uh, we've always been uh, to some degree passive consumers. And, you know, there, there were Jeffersonian newspapers, there were Hamiltonian newspapers. Um, so we, we sort of laud the era of, say, Walter Cronkite and the Huntley Brinkley Report maybe more than we should. But with, with, with the explosion of options for consumers of the news today in the midst of myriad daily responsibilities, how difficult is it? in your view, to be an informed citizen that does not render one in a reactionary posture? I, this is a tough, tough question. I was someone who misjudged the situation during the explosion of sources and the, what you might call the new cacophony. I thought eventually people will sort this out for themselves and there will be a flight to quality they will realize, oh, this place that I visit online has been wrong too often about too many things. So I have to take, I'll still go there, but I have to take what they say with a grain of salt. While this place, I may not like what I perceive their ideological orientation to be, but if I read it there, I know that somebody checked it. I know it's been edited. I know it's pretty much the truth even if that truth bothered me. I gave Americans, adults, a lot of credit for being adults. I was wrong. 
Now what I think is instead of a flight to quality, it's a flight to comfort. And we are long-term satisfied with going to places that reinforce and comfort our sense of the way the world is. So if we want to hate one politician and enjoy another, if we want to believe certain things that are, are, are true about America when they aren't, we will not do the hard work of sorting out truth from falsehood, even if it takes us to uncomfortable places. It is unfortunately more likely that we will go to places that reinforce our notions of grievance and who's right and who's wrong and who's good and who's bad in a longitudinal way. We will stay aligned to, faithful to those places that give us a portrait of a complicated and challenging world that doesn't force us to think too much. You know, there's been a lot of emphasis this century, in this decade, the last two decades in particular, about journalistic bias. And, 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 and you mentioned the word amorphous earlier, and this one sort of seems amorphous to me because it sounds as if journalists should live in a styrofoam cocoon and not influenced by the world. What in, in Ray Suarez's world... And on the public reality, you are the king, so you have the final say. But in Ray Suarez's world, what is bias? Um, I mean, I like chocolate ice cream. You like vanilla. So we all have biases. So what is journalistic bias to you? To me, the job is presenting in an expository fashion all the facts in evidence that any member of the public needs to absorb in order to A, understand what's going on, and B, come to a conclusion about what they think about it. That's the job. Give them all the facts they need to understand what's going on and understand how they respond to it. Bias is when you develop for yourself, me as a writer, uh, getting ready, ready to do a live shot on a TV station, uh, getting ready to do a radio program, generate all the facts that you would need to do that and then purposely not present some of them to the public in order to drive their conclusion. That's bias. Putting your thumb on the scale in a way that drives them to a certain conclusion, the conclusion you want them to arrive at. So you are purposely going through the facts that you have mastered, that you have teased out, that you have elicited through the people you interview and the research you've done and the data you've gone through. And you say, okay, I got it. But now I'm going to change the shape of the universe that I present to my readers, viewers, and listeners, not telling them things that I know to be true in order to change their view or lead them to a view. The impulse that would make me do that is bias. It's bias acting as a motivator because I want, I can use my position as a reporter in order to shape public conclusions about these stories. I'm speaking with veteran journalist and friend to the public rally, Ray Suarez. Ray, one of the reasons we, we wanted to have you on is, is, is because our politics has in many ways become an endless 
campaign cycle. There's the presidential election. The next year you have the off-year elections, which just concluded. Uh, and then the next year we have the midterm elections, and though technically we have like a two-year hiatus between the midterm and another general, everybody's jockeying for uh, president. They're raising money, regardless of the office. Does this create additional burden on how journalists, especially at the national level, cover the news? Well, I think um, honest people can disagree about whether it's a burden or not. There is a responsibility uh, to explain what's going on. Uh, to the degree that journalists are lazy and want to make everything about 2024, uh, yeah, you know, there will be opportunities that will be missed. There will be um, stories that are told in a way that forces everything into the mold of horse race and who's up and who's down for 2024. To give you an example, uh, the Biden infrastructure plan. I can't tell you how much coverage I read about that plan that didn't tell me hardly anything about what was in it, just about whether it would be good or bad politically for Biden to pass it, and who was giving him fits on the way to a vote and on the way to passage. That's important stuff to understand. The politics underlying the journey from idea to legislation, sure. Is that the only part of the story that the public is supposed to get? How would you make a conclusion on whether you actually want this thing to pass or not? Well, if you went by the coverage, whether you wanted it to pass or not would be heavily influenced by whether or not you like Joe Biden or not, rather than whether or not you thought what was contained in that legislation would be good for the country or not. What was, you know, modernizing the power grid, um, bringing broadband to rural communities, um, clean water and the, the infrastructure that's necessary to bring clean water to small, small cities. These things are important things and it's important to know whether it's in the bill or not. If something gets taken out to win somebody's vote, it's important to know what that was too. And I fear that the way that was covered forced Americans into a posture where they supported or didn't support the bill only based on the politics of it rather than based on what was in it, which isn't what we should be arguing about. Whether or not this thing passed this month is not a 2024 campaign story or a 2022 campaign story. It's a, are we going to be able to have reliable electricity in five years and 10 years story as well? And a how are we going to pay for this thing story in five years and 10 years as well? And it was one of those moments where you really thought, I'm not getting what I need from these people because I keep hearing about the 2022 midterms and the slim Democratic majority in the House, and I'm not hearing about what's in this damn bill. Yes, I keep hearing about the price tag, but I don't know in 10 years what this thing is going to be paying for. And if it's a, mil if it's a trillion and a half dollars in total, does a reporter have a responsibility to call it a trillion and a half dollars in total, making it sound like a big, big thing, or $150 billion a year, 
which is a drop in the bucket in the size of the federal budget. These are all questions that go to the heart of what we say and how we say the things we say. Well, well with that said, Ray, um, the, the changes that we've been talking about um, in this particular conversation, the change in journalism, in your view, has it placed an enhanced responsibility on the consumer of the news or is it or the burden on the, the journalist, the media, if you will? It's, pay, it's placed a lot of burdens in a lot of places. Uh, yes, there is an added burden on the consuming audience to be careful about what they hear from who, listen to how things are, how facts placed in evidence are supported, what's offered as proof, um, a, a burden that didn't used to exist because when there was more faith in the operation, the unremarkable day-to-day -day operation of the news business, you could pick up your paper and th think because it said XYZ, that XYZ was probably true, exactly as it was written there. Now, we have to doubt everything because there's other motivations involved. The person who told the reporter XYZ may be lying to the reporter. The reporter who once upon a time was part of an enormous staff, so only had to write one story that day, now has to write three stories. So when politician Joe Jones says XYZ, he doesn't have time to check it. He just puts Joe Jones' quote in there and feels like his work is done. Uh, forcing us to be stenographers rather than reporters. So there's a lot of blame to go around. There's a lot of burden to go around. A, there are fewer people making a living as reporters full-time in the United States than there were 20 years ago. And it seems like there's 10 times as much content. So every time a newspaper lays off half its staff, but still next week is pretty much the same size, that means reporters are doing more with less faster and have much less time to check the things that they are being told by people in responsibility. So there's actually a lot of responsibility for the state of play to go around. And yeah, a lot, a lot of new burden placed on the public to be more careful about what it hears from who and whether they believe it and whether they have to compare it to what they're hearing from other places. Well, well, well given that answer, uh, we're in this era of fake news, if you would. And Gallup placed American trust in uh, uh, in the media to report news fairly and accurately uh, is at 36%. So just based on your last answer, I can't see that going anywhere but on a downward trajectory. Hopefully we're at a dwell point. Um, I, I hope it doesn't go lower because it'll just, it'll just make it imp impossible for the public to make conclusions about whether what they're hearing is true or not. I think it's very hard to be a news consumer in the 21st century. And if that faith goes even lower, you know, I'll give you an example. When I was covering um, Judge Alito's, uh, Justice Alito's confirmation hearings, I was anchoring the PBS coverage. And a guy wrote me and said, uh, well, I, I saw your story on the news hour about the Alito hearings, and I had watched the entire hearing that day, and I felt that your story was really biased. So I wrote back and I said, you know, what makes you say that? I mean, I, it heavily leaned on 
bites from the justice himself, the questions he was being answered, asked and the answers he gave. He said, well, I watched the whole thing and I felt that you misstated the, the thrust of both the questioning and his answers. And I said, look, uh, I w obviously I watched the whole thing too. <laughs> and uh, this, these answers that I chose to highlight, because I cover the court routinely, I thought that these answers related to things that the high court is being asked to rule about in various parts of the law that the, in recent years the justices have been asked to rule on. He wrote back and said, well, I just think you're biased. And I wrote back to him and said, look, the whole existence of me doing this in the first place is because 99.9% .9 of the world can't listen to five hours of testimony. They just can't. And I had to listen to all of that, synthesize it with what I already know about the operation of the court, the rulings of the other justices in other cases, and bring the public a vision of what I felt they needed to know. So at some point, you just have to trust my experience, my expertise in this area, and my discernment as a reporter to know that this answer wasn't that important, but this other one after the lunch break was really important. If you can't take that on faith, you may conclude that I'm biased, but almost nobody in the world can listen to all five hours of testimony. The reason we exist is to be your proxy in the world, to go see the world and hear things and see things and talk to people and then turn it into a smaller, consumable piece of experience so that you can know what went on. And if you can't take that on faith, well, you, you know, I, we're, we're sunk then. You're going to have to watch every hearing. Well, you know, Ray, I, I know you're, I'll use a baseball analogy here. I know you're a Yankee fan, but what, what you make your last answer sound is like you and I are at a Yankee game, and Aaron Judge takes one right down the middle, and then some guy behind us screams, how can you let that pitch go? But he's not on the field. He's not on the mound. He has no really idea what 95 on the black looks like. <laughs> you bet. You bet. And if he was standing there... When that same pitch came in, he would have hit the deck. <laughs> right. But as a member of the public, uh, he's given the endless right to second-guess everybody. Aaron Judge, the umpire, the play-by-play -play guys, everybody. And that's the part of the problem for reporters is that the public has an unending right to be our critics. And I don't, I will never take that away from them or question that right. I just need my right to respond and explain this is why I did what I did which that guy will never get from Aaron Judge unfortunately he won't be hey Aaron how come you how come you let that pitch in the fifth inning go man that was a meatball you should have hit that 500 feet right right um, before we let you go and you've been so gracious with your time thank you um, give us uh, a, an update uh, a plug if you will on your latest project I'm the host of a new podcast called going for broke which is presented by a partnership of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and The Nation magazine. And the Economic Hardship Reporting Project has over the years been gathering the stories of people dealing with tough economic times. But this heightened during the pandemic when a lot of Americans were in a lot of trouble. So we've collected some of the best of these stories 
and made a first-person narrative podcast series about what it's been like to get through tough economic times. And we bring some wonderful stories in the series of people who have faced the loss of their careers, the loss of their homes, the loss of their livelihoods, and how they've managed and how they've coped. So I hope people will uh, search either for the t just the title, Going for Broke, or they can put in to their search bar, Going for Broke with Ray Suarez, which is the complete title of the podcast series, or just look up The Nation or the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, and you can act or go to any of the places where you get your podcasts, the other big platform companies that present podcasts. You can find us a lot of different ways, but it's a great, moving, evocative, and I think right on time series about the state of play economically for everyday Americans. Well, I, I, I am one of the consumers, uh, so I can say firsthand it is a... I definitely, uh, those listening, I would definitely um, encourage you all to listen because, and Ray, you do a great job on it, and, and thank you for that work uh, in all sincerity. And thank you for once again uh, joining us on the Public Morality. I always uh, in, uh, enjoy your insight, sir. Good to talk to you, Byron, anytime. Uh, again, going for broke with Ray Suarez, you, you shouldn't miss it. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Morality on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the Pullman Corrality at their studios. The Pullman Corrality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Pullman Corrality, I'm Byron Williams.